excited to be here this morning. I was really excited when Pastor Jim gave me this opportunity to, to address you this morning. I got somewhat less excited when I realized he'd be sitting in the room with me as I did it. Uh, but it is a joy to be here this morning. Uh, if you're here in the room, welcome. If you're joining us online, so glad you're still continuing to, to connect with us here, here at Hillcrest. Uh, so today we're going to keep going with our restart series. You know, we've been talking about it. Uh, this mission statement has been repeated over and over again. Uh, but I, I want to keep that at the forefront of our minds here so that we can focus on the mission. So, so our guys on the tech team, they're going to throw it up on the screen for us again this morning. And we're going to read it all out loud. Here we go. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ who worship God connect with others, serve the world, and invest in someone. You know, Pastor Jim laid out for us again exactly what this, this whole process means of, of becoming like Christ last week. And he talked a little about how as a staff and as a vision team, we, we've kind of worked to lay out a fuller description by adding that phrase at the end, invest in someone. Uh, but this week, we're going to actually look at the first core value. And I think it's first for a reason. It's, it's one that's distinctive, it's of primary importance, and that's that we are a people who worship God. We worship God. So if you have your Bible with you, begin turning to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17. That's going to be you know, our primary text this morning, but we're going to actually be looking at a number of scriptures that kind of help us formulate what exactly it means to worship God. Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Father, we, your people, have gathered here this morning to worship you. And so we ask that as we look deeply into the scriptures this morning, that your spirit would guide us, it would correct us, it would encourage us, it would teach us. And if there's any error in our worship, Father, we ask you bring it to our attention this morning. If we've offered incomplete or unacceptable worship, Father, call us to repentance. And if there are things in our lives that, that hinder our true worship of you, Father, this morning we ask that you would refine us and restore us. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your word. And Father, most of all, thank you for the life-giving sacrifice that came through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, back in 2009, I was playing basketball at a at a church gym up in Augusta, Georgia. And as I was playing, there was a shot that went up. Long rebound comes off, and I take off after it. But, surprising as it may be, someone faster comes from the other side and tips the ball the other way, and so I attempt to shift directions as quickly as possible. As I do that, however, I hear and feel a loud pop in my left knee. So I immediately hit the floor, and, and I knew, you know, this wasn't going to be good. By the time I made it home, my knee looked like a grapefruit, and my suspicions were confirmed later when the doctor said, yes, you've, you've torn your ACL, you've torn your meniscus, uh, you're headed towards a pretty long process of surgery and physical therapy. Now, most people, when I talk about physical therapy, you might have kind of a, 
a love-hate relationship with a physical therapist if you've been through that process in the past. Uh, it seems that you know, a big part of their job is to come up with ways that inflict pain and, and make you very uncomfortable. Uh, but at the same time, I'm amazed at, at how they can figure out kind of a regimen of exercises or stretches that actually get you back to your normal activities. The most amazing thing, I think, is, is I've observed that a physical therapist a lot of times can just watch you perform a task, maybe even just watch you walk across a room, and from that, they know exactly what's going on in your body and how your body is responding to an injury. It's kind of like, a, kind of like an x-ray vision almost, right? See, at the time, I lived in a two-story house, which was very unfortunate. I mean, I needed to learn how to get up and down stairs pretty quickly if I wanted to get back to any semblance of normal. Uh, and I was, I was working on that, right? At first, I had to use crutches, couldn't use the leg at all, and then eventually start to use it a little bit. And, uh, and I felt like I was getting better at it, making good progress. And so one, one session I, I get to with my PT, he, he pulls out this, this four or five step up and down apparatus, right? And so I'm looking, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I got this. I'm probably going to impress him a little bit today with, with what I've done. And so he told me, just, just walk slowly up the stairs and back down the stairs, and, uh, and we'll, see, we'll see how you do. So I did. I, I walked up, you know, alternating one foot in front of the other. Fairly normal, I mean slow, but, but fairly normal up and down the steps. And, and I turn around, you know, half expecting at least a, a smile, maybe a, a little celebratory, yeah, good job, way to go. And instead I'm greeted with this. He says, you didn't use your knee at all. I looked at him in a bit of disbelief. I was like, I put one foot in front of the other. I didn't just go one foot at a time up the stairs. What do you mean? I didn't use my knee at all. He said, no, I can tell the way you're walking up the stairs, your body's just angling itself. Your hips are moving in a way that you really didn't have to use the injured knee at all. And so my body was compensating in ways that I didn't really understand. I wasn't making a conscious decision. My body just knew that there was a weakness on one side and it did what it had to do to get the task done. See, I, I still had a long ways to go before I'd use my leg completely to go up and down stairs. But I wonder sometimes if, if maybe our worship could be something like that. Right? It looks like we're doing it. You're coming most every week. You're singing. You're singing. You're praying, you're, you're listening to the preached word, you might even be giving. Any outside observer looks at it and says, you're checking all the boxes, you, you must be doing it. But I wonder sometimes if we're really ever doing it at all. What if we've just gotten good at covering up the weaknesses in our worship rather than offering true, acceptable worship to God? And so today, I'd like for God, through his Holy Spirit, his presence in our lives, and his inspired word, to be like that physical therapist for us this morning, examining what we believe about worship, how we engage in worship, and whether we're doing it in a way that truly pleases God. But to start, I want to zoom way out. I want to get the biggest picture I can, so I want to ask the most fundamental question I can about worship, and that is this, why do we worship? I find it to be fascinating that, that pretty much every culture that we've observed through time and in history they have this tendency towards worship. Now, they may have a pantheon of gods that they worship. They may deify a man as God. They might have an unknown God or even in worship nature. But there seems to be a constant among people that we have this tendency to worship someone or something. 
I was reading a couple of articles recently uh, published by the BBC and a, and a research paper from Yale, and, and they both found evidence that there's, there's a psychological and there's neurological factors that predispose us into believing in something other than us, some, some high, higher power that compels us to worship. And interesting as that is, what I thought was interesting is that really, the, not that there's some physically observable trait that, that leads us to worship, it's that most of these scientists look at that data and come to a different conclusion than I do. Right? They look at it and say, here we have evidence that, that man is just creating a God in his own mind. It probably doesn't exist. We just create him in our own minds because we're kind of predisposed to do that. But I think their own presuppositions have blinded them to a much more obvious conclusion. Perhaps a, a creator God has placed within the mind of man some sense of who he is. Right? What if instead of man creating God in his mind, God actually created the mind of man? See, I believe that worship is innate because, very simply, we were created to worship. So that answers why we worship at all, but maybe a more pertinent question might be, why do we worship God? Why do we worship God? And so let's look again to Scripture. Uh, whenever you want to talk about worship and look at worship in the context of, of the gathered assembly, a great place to go is the book of Hebrews. It's a great place if you're looking to form a theology of worship. So let's look at the 12th chapter, verses 28 and 29. Now, coming into this, the author has kind of contrasted some things which are eternal with other things which are temporary. And he, and he refers to those temporary things as things that, that will be shaken and then we come down to verse 28 where he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, God is, is going to strip away every temporary thing. His kingdom will be that that remains unshaken. And it's, it's that truth that calls us to worship him. It's not simply some admiration we may have for his prior success, it's not a self-serving act like many do where they, they worship in order to try to bend the will of God to theirs. We worship God primarily because of two things. It all boils down to two things. We worship God because of who he is and because of what he has done. Now when we consider who he is, there's a, there's a characteristic that jumps out above all over the other. The, the characteristic that comes to my mind is that he is holy. Now, when I say that, I want to be sure we're all on the same page because that word can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But when I say holy, I'm talking about something that's entirely separate from and unlike any other. It's beyond just talking about God's perfection or his righteousness, true as those things are. It's a claim to uniqueness and absolute authority. We see it in the formulation we just sung together, holy, holy, holy. Right, And that same formulation happens in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. It happens in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Our God is holy. One of the things we see that our response should be to that holiness we find in Psalm chapter 99, verse 5. There the psalmist writes, Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Now this word holy, it, we use it beyond just talking about God, right? You've probably referenced yourself the holy land right? The, the holy land. Now, if you think about that, you, you start thinking that God has created kind of these concentric circles that zero in on his very presence, right? You have the holy land, but within the holy land, you have the holy city. Within the holy city, you had the holy temple. 
Within the holy temple, you had the holy place, and then going all the way in to the most holy place, the holy of holies. And when we look at that picture, when we see what it's like, we understand that that God is, is teaching us all throughout the Old Testament that as we draw closer to him, there's a greater and greater separation that exists. You start to realize more man's unworthiness in the light of God's holiness. See, much of the law in the Old Testament, it was meant to teach us about the holiness of God and the unworthiness of man. And if that's where the story ended, man, we'd be in a bad spot. Right? That's a story of separation. But it doesn't stop there. Remember that I said that we worship God not only for who he is, but we worship him for what he has done. Unholy man can't approach God on his own. We have no basis for that. We must be cleansed by a holy God. The rituals that existed throughout the law, they meant to convey this truth, and then when Jesus came, he fulfilled it. Let's look again to the book of Hebrews, this time in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Here we see the amazing work of God through Jesus as our basis for worship. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the good news is the sin that separates from God, it can be washed away. It can be washed away. And all who trust in the atoning sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ, believing that he lived on this earth, that he died for us, was buried rose again and ascended to the Father where he lives eternally, they can enter his presence with confidence. I want to make sure you understand, though, this morning, this, the basis for our confidence, right? It's not something within us. And so when we consider confidence, it should actually make us consider our sin even more, not less. You see, God is not drawn near to us by just lowering his standards. He doesn't draw near to us by ignoring the sin that we have. He deals with our sin and he deals with it on the basis of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and then calls us to the same holiness. You'll remember in 1 Peter, he reminds that. We're to be holy as he is holy. So we worship God because of who he is and because of what he's done. And I think if any passage conveys this beautifully, it's Psalm 86. And Psalm 86, beginning in verse 8, says this, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. He's holy. He's separate. Nor are there any works like yours. What he has done. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And then if we didn't get the point, he recaps. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Notice this. The Lord is unique. He's holy. His works are unique and they're holy. And the inevitable result of those things is that the nations will worship him. So hopefully that's, that's clear to you why we should worship God. But now I have to ask this, why do we worship together? Why together? So far, it's, it's been calls to worship that you could potentially say, well, I can, I can do that on my own. But why do we worship together? Why at Hocrest do we believe that we should assemble to worship God corporately. Well, first of all, this, this isn't a new concept. Someone didn't come up with this recently, right? We see a consistent pattern of worship throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout the early church and all of church history. 
Whether, whether the meeting happened as a family, as a nation, whether it happened in a tabernacle, a temple, a synagogue, a cathedral, or even like our worship center today, we've always been a people who engage in gathered worship. And this brings to mind another familiar passage from Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, we'll look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, we'll focus a lot on this passage and the aspect of being together next week, so we won't spend a lot of time on that here right now, but I think it's obvious. It's obvious to see why God has prescribed worship in a gathered assembly. There's mutual benefit to it, right? Failing to worship together, it it robs us. It robs you. It robs others. It robs them of the blessings of fellowship, of instruction, and of encouragement, Recall back to our main passage in Colossians 3. We are called in one body so that we may teach and admonish one another. Now I want you to understand, worship is a broad concept. It's going to affect every part of your life and of your lifestyle. But there are some things that simply cannot be done alone. So with the time we have remaining, I'm going to get even more specific. So I'm going to ask the question, why do we worship the way we do? Why do we worship the way that we do? We'll break this down into a couple sections as well. We'll look at what we do and how we do it. Now, when we look at worship in the Old Testament, it's very prescribed, right? There's detailed instructions on exactly what the place and format of worship should look like. You know, that all began with with God giving the law after he redeemed his people. And prior to that, we have some hints given about uh, personal and family worship, but the gathered assembly really takes shape at this time. Once he establishes them as a people, he begins to give very specific instructions on what proper worship should look like for them. But then we flip the page to the New Testament and everything's a bit different, right? We, we don't have the same prescriptions. We have there some, some cautions and some warnings about how to maintain order in worship, but we don't have a lot of prescription there. So if, there, if we lack this very detailed prescription of what worship looks like in a New Testament era, era, then why, you know, what exactly are these elements that should be a part of gathered worship? Do we just make it up as we go, or are there some things that Scripture tells us should be present? Going back to our passage in Colossians chapter 3, we do see some fairly specific commands for what should be going on, right? There's a command to teach and to sing. And because of this, we know that the preaching of the Word, it takes center stage throughout the New Testament. It's, it's why it has a central role for us here at Hillcrest. That's the most direct way that we have to teach and admonish one another. But Colossians 3 is also quite clear that singing is important as well. It mentions three different types of songs that should be sung. You have psalms, you have hymns, and you have spiritual songs. Now, when we read those words today, In our culture, we've got centuries of music history and tradition behind us to look at. And so our minds will kind of normally uh, categorize these things a certain way. Maybe we think of psalms being as those those things straight from Scripture. Hymns are the songs that have been around for a long time. And spiritual songs might be the more contemporary music that we use. I'm not sure that this is quite accurate, though. Obviously, when Paul wrote about hymns, I don't think he was thinking of amazing grace or how great thou art. And so we've got to look at what he really meant by them. Is there any distinction between these? Scholars are actually not in agreement over this. They're not sure what the distinction might have been. But I think there are some some things that we can note from it, right? 
First, mentioning the Psalms seems very appropriate. That would have been a very normal part of Jewish worship at the time. And so he encourages them to keep that practice. But then we get to this word that, that's translated hymn. And actually, what that would be is it most commonly be referred to a secular or a pagan hymn uh, of praise to a god or, or some kind of hero. Right? It didn't have the religious context that we have looking back on it. That, that has a very secular context. and In fact, it's probably one of the first examples of Christianity going into the world and redeeming something out of it for use in worshiping God. And then you have this phrase, spiritual songs, and it, it sounds more like a, a generic catch-all uh, for various types of music that could be used in a spiritual way. Uh, and that could imply that, that Paul is suggesting that, hey, you need to reach out. You need to start using songs in a varied way. Don't get too confined into one style or, or one type of song. But the songs themselves, they, they need to be useful, right? They, they can't be merely for entertainment purposes or or to celebrate art as art, they have to be a tool to communicate things to God and communicate things to each other. And they must have a spiritual purpose for teaching and training the body of Christ. Now, when I say that, that they should be useful for teaching, some people might question, you know, a song's really, really useful for teaching. Uh, and I think to answer that, I could bring up any preschool teacher in the room, right? Or I could just simply ask you, how did you learn the alphabet when you were a child? Probably through a song. Songs are effective at teaching. We use music to teach. We sometimes use music also to, com to communicate complex realities, right, that, that might not be truly expressible just through words. But it can be a double-edged sword, right, it, it, because it is useful for teaching and because it has the power to, to generate and express emotion, then it's easy to get caught up in a song that, that maybe you don't necessarily agree with. And that's why, why Brad and I and the staff of your church, we, we take great care at looking at the music that we, that we use in our worship setting. We want to be very careful that we never put words into your mouth or thoughts into your mind that are somehow contrary to the teaching of Scripture. We want it to be useful in the corporate worship setting. But going back to Colossians 3, I think there's another theme. And when, when I read it out loud to you, you probably heard this theme popping up over and over again with phrases like, be thankful with thankfulness, giving thanks. The primary ways that we express thankfulness in our gathered worship settings are through prayer and also through giving. The book of Acts repeatedly describes these two things as, as being a part of the church's early worship, and rightly, it's, it's a part of our worship even today. Now, we offer corporate prayers. We offer prayers led by pastors, prayers led by the worship leaders, uh, even times for individual prayer throughout our services. And then, on the giving side, while it might look a little different in this pandemic era, we do offer financial offerings as part of our worship. Now, perhaps out of uh, practicality, efficiency, or immediacy, many of us actually choose to give online, uh, either periodically or in, in, a, in a scheduled fashion. But make no mistake, that is still an act of worship, and I, and I pray that you would see it as such. So our passage covers these four clear elements, right? We have preaching, we have singing. We have praying and we have giving, but we should also include two ordinances of the church that we do see regularly observed as well, and that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are clearly a part of our worship, even if they're not observed at every gathering. Baptism proclaims the testimony of a believer and provides a visual symbol of the gospel message, while the Lord's Supper gives us the opportunity to join together in a tangible memorial of the sacrifice of our Lord. These are a gift to the church, 
And so we should endeavor to, to celebrate them regularly. In fact, we'll this morning be able to baptize in, in both of our services. And just a few weeks after today, we'll actually be able to partake of the Lord's Supper together. That is a part of our worship. It's a part of why we gather to celebrate those things. So those are the elements of worship, right? It's what we do. Now we'll get to perhaps a bit of a more controversial topic, and that's how we do it. As we look at that, I want to first look at one of the most famous passages in Scripture dealing with worship. And that's Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now you may recall he's, he's alone at the well having sent the disciples out to buy food. And this woman uh, comes to draw water from the well. And, and there's a conversation that ensues there. And through the course of that conversation, the woman perceives that, that Jesus is a prophet. And so she has, she has an important question that she wants to ask him. Right? Her people had been estranged from the Jews. They worshipped in a different place on a different mountain. And so she just had a simple question, which, which one of us is right? Now let me give you perhaps a little more detailed background on, on what that question entailed. Right? Some 750 years prior to that, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by Assyria. There was a remnant that was left there, and that remnant is, is who would become those Samaritan people. But that remnant, they, they began to follow other gods, began to intermarry with other cultures, and then the Jews of the southern kingdom, they, they consequently viewed them as, as kind of half-breeds or religiously compromised people. They had no regard for them. There was, a, there was a distrust there. There was a dislike. There was a judgmental glance every time that, that one saw the other. And so you may have heard of you know, worship wars happening in, in the church in modern times, the battles that happen over style. But if you want to talk about a real worship war, you talk about what the Jews did some 150 years prior to this conversation, they actually went up to the temple that the Samaritans had built on Mount Gerizim and tore it down. So much was their distaste for their form of worship, they tore the temple down. And so that leads to this point, a question that this woman had probably had her entire life. I know the Jews worship there. I know we worship here. I want to know who's getting it right, right? Which people offers acceptable worship. And it's a question she finally thought she could get an answer to from this prophet. But the answer he gives, you, gives her is surprising. It culminates in verses 23 and 24 with this famous line, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, she asked a question about how she was supposed to worship. But Jesus answers by transforming her entire view of what worship really was. So while we can talk about the how this morning, and we should, keep in mind that, that God's desire is that we worship in spirit and in truth. But when we look at the how, the first thing we come to, obviously, is style. right? And style is, is simply putting our worship into a culturally relevant form that allows God's people to express their worship in a personal way. Now, the point of style should never be simply about catering to personal preferences or, or attracting people outside of the church to come in, even, those th even though those things might occur. The point is, is with culturally relevant style, we let the body join together in forms of expression that are authentic and that are meaningful. And here at Hillcrest, we, we try to employ a variety of styles because we know that uh, every demographic of our congregation needs to engage in worship 
in a way that's comfortable and familiar to them. This can get tricky, obviously, right? There's, there's a whole host of different styles out there and different preferences within our congregation, different backgrounds in worship. We have a, a multicultural, a multi-generational congregation, so we're not all going to have the same background. Personally, I think that this is part of the emphasis that Paul has when he references psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He knew that the church would need to include multiple types and forms in order to involve the entire congregation in corporate worship. And when we talk about the how of worship, we can also reference tradition, right? Because worship is a cultural expression, traditions are naturally going to be born and be propagated. These can be specific or localized to an individual congregation, Uh, For instance, you might attend a church where, you know, Brother Harvey reads the announcements after the sermon every week. That's a tradition, right? You can think of things more broad, like we might speak of the Baptist tradition or the Presbyterian tradition, and those describe more general approaches to worship. I remember myself attending churches, and and many of you may have as well, where, where they sang the doxology every week to the tune of the old hundredth. It was like clockwork. You knew it was coming, right? That would be a tradition, It's not necessarily married to a particular style, but it reflects a practice that carries additional meaning for the congregation simply because of its repetition over time. Finally, when we talk about a worship service, you'll often come across this word liturgy, right? We often use it, uh, liturgy being formal, but in fact, the word just means the form or order of a worship service. We might refer to liturgical versus non-liturgical, but But for instance, when we look at a Catholic Mass or or a Presbyterian service from the Book of Common Worship, we call that liturgical. Yet if you ask someone who's attended Hillcrest for any any manner of time what a worship service is like at Hillcrest, they can give you a pretty easy description of how things go around here. And that description probably matches countless other Baptist churches or other denominations or non-denominational churches in our area and around the country. Right? Anytime you practice worship there's going to essentially become a de facto liturgy. So the distinction is usually more about the particular type of form, but the the form that we consider liturgical might be something that's prescribed from from an ancient source or from a governing body. It might be something that's usually more formal uh, than a service that we might have. Now, we also don't follow a liturgical calendar the same way a lot of denominations might. Right? We, we observe major Christian holidays and, and we bring up things throughout the year, but in many traditions, the liturgical calendar orders every part of their corporate worship setting and also worship in private. And all this is, is wonderful variation, right? As part of my seminary training in worship, I actually had the opportunity, uh, well, I didn't even have the opportunity, I was told that I had to, uh, go and observe many different types of worship services. Right? Most of us, we, we grow up in, in one, maybe two different, you know, uh, genres of worship, two different denominations, two different traditions at most. Uh, But through this, I got a chance to to attend Pentecostal meetings, Catholic masses, a Messianic synagogue Shabbat service, an Eastern Orthodox service, and and several others. And and each of them had remarkable elements, right? Each of them had things that that really had had a lot of value both to that congregation and, and me just as an observer, Right, But we need to realize that it's important that, that the value in one form doesn't invalidate other forms. Right? We can appreciate that there's mystery in a, in a Greek Orthodox service. We can appreciate the formality and reverence that comes from, from high church-style worship. 
We can appreciate the historicity and the structure of following a liturgical calendar, and we can even appreciate the freedom that comes from a spontaneous type of worship service. We can do that all the while holding to our own traditions and, and, and knowing that through it all, we are worshiping the same God. Even so, a lot of times we're going to be tempted to ask that question, similar to, to that of the Samaritan woman. Of all these different options that are out there, which one is right? What's the precise way that God wants us to order public worship? And I think Jesus' answer would probably be the same. Right? The how is going to vary. Different people at different times and different cultures with different backgrounds, they will worship in different ways. But what is critical is that we worship God in spirit and in truth. We can't be fooled into thinking that just attending the right worship service or, or performing the correct ritual results in acceptable worship. We must take responsibility for preparing our own hearts to worship God, for participating fully in worship together and then allowing him to transform our thinking about what worship is. So as we take the opportunity here for a restart, refocusing our attention on our mission, on our purpose, the reason we're here, remember, you're made to worship. God created you for this purpose, and so we're to worship him for who he is and what he's done. And God also created us to worship together in Christian community, within the local church and as part of the church around the world and throughout all time. So when we gather, we proclaim and teach the word through preaching and singing. We express thankfulness through prayer and through giving, and we demonstrate the wonderful truth and impact of the gospel when we partake in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And while we may do all these things a little bit differently than the church down the road, we at Hillcrest try to remain faithful to Paul's final admonition to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.